Strong Opinions Only with your hosts, Justin and Kayla. And this week, we are kind of doing a part two to last week's podcast, and we're going to be getting into a little bit more detail on these Oscar films. Yeah, that's right. I mean, last week, we chatted about the 94th Oscar nominees, what we thought about them, and I thought it would be fun this week to do a quick highs and lows summary for a few of the films most nominated. I mean, there are a few more movies not mentioned today that we'll be covering in the later weeks leading up to the Oscars. But we have plenty of films to get through. So let's get right into it after I ask you one question. And Uh I swear it's Oscar related. I was not prepped for this. This is not in our show notes. It was recently announced that we have Oscar hosts now, which is Amy Schumer, Regina Hall, and Wanda Sykes. What do you think? Three, are they going to host together or are they going to kind of tag in and out? I'm picturing like a couple all together and then I assume they're going to take turns. I really like Wanda Sykes. She's freaking hilarious. I do as well, yes. Amy Schumer's kind of a hit or miss for me. Mm -hmm. You know, it depends. And who was the uh, the third one? Regina Hall. Regina Hall. I'm kind of indifferent on. So I'm kind of excited for Wanda Sykes and how they're going to interact between the three of them. I'm glad you said like Wanda Sykes of the three. Like she just cracks me up. No misses. Amy Schumer's kind of been quiet. She's had some like bad films. Well, and she also had the, uh, the baby and the whole situation yes. she went through there yes. and the special that's on so she's been kind of out like kind of missing yeah. from uh, hollywood so it's an interesting dynamic i'm curious in the dynamic i mean what made amy shoot or not amy schumer amy polar tina face great is their chemistry as friends yeah so i don't know how all three of them if they hang out or you know like what that dynamic's going to be when they're joking or riffing off each other or it could be so awkward that it's great so true. But either way, like, I think comedians is the better way to go. Yeah, so. I, I think that's a pretty, pretty safe bet. At least keep it a little light. And as we know, they need to get a bigger audience this year than they did last year, for sure. Yeah, they're, they're just dead in the water. They need to redo what they're doing because it's not working. But listen, we got a lot of films to go through. So I'm ready if you are. Ready? All right, so our first film... We're going to discuss is Spencer. So actually the first two films, I kind of want to talk to talk about them kind of one and two, because they both kind of have something in common, which is that they cover a specific time in the lives of high profile people. Um, so which brings us, of course, to our first film, Spencer, uh, with Spencer takes place over the course of three days in 1991 when Princess Diana joins the royal family at Sandringham House, a private home of, of course, her mother-in-law at the time, Queen Elizabeth II. Um, a year before she separated from Prince Charles. I'm predisposed to love all things <laughs> Princess Diana just because of who she was as a person. Biased. Yep. Um, my love of all things British. Mm-hmm. But because my mom was and continues to be the biggest Princess Diana fan. And I remember at seven, my mom like crying hysterically watching her funeral. So it's like a poignant memory. So love it. And uh, yeah, Spencer highs. What do you think? So Kristen Stewart, mm-hmm. I thought performed very well in a very difficult role. And the wardrobe. And that's all I have because the rest of the movie was shit. Okay, that's it for your highs. That's it for my highs. Okay, so I'll, I have a couple more. Okay. Well, they're, they're, they're wrong. Okay, they're I, wrong. I enjoyed this film. Kristen Stewart was one of my highs. I thought she did really well in kind of emboating Princess Diane in the way that the, the film was stylized. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean it wasn't, if it was more of a traditional biopic, I don't think she would have been good. But because of how it was filmed as this kind of tormented Diana who felt trapped in this loveless marriage in a royalty prison, um, 
And it's a psychological thriller, right? That's a different take on the story over the course of these three days. We'll, we'll get into that in my lows. In your lows. Okay. So I liked that. It's a high. I liked that it was something not expected because I thought it was a general kind of biopicy. Um, second, I liked that her accent wasn't bad. I didn't think. I didn't think it was terrible. She didn't talk an awful much, but neither did Princess Diane as far as what we have seen her do. You know, she's very photogenic, but... You know, just kind of some interviews you see her in. So I thought it was pretty good. I don't agree the movie was good by any stretch. Okay. Like, I think Kristen Stewart did well. She did a lot better than I thought. When I heard Kristen Stewart as Princess Diana, I was like, oof, how is that going to work? But then when you see her, it's like, she kind of pulls it off look-wise. Like, nobody can really be Princess Di, right? But she did a pretty good job, I thought. But my lows. Oh, I got one more high. Oh, you got it. Okay. One more, one more. I liked the directing in the moments of the house when she's in the house because I felt claustrophobic like they were trying to show Diana was claustrophobic with the butler always watching her and commenting on where she's going. The the housekeeper's warning her to keep her thoughts to herself. Like, if that was three days of her life, I mean, at this point in the the her life she was married for 11 years already like this is supposed to be the turning point of her realizing like i want to leave i can't do this yeah anymore. i can't yeah. do this anymore right but i'm thinking 11 years of that like here are your clothes where are you going what are you thinking don't wear that don't do this yeah okay i get the psychological <laughs> thriller of it all so that was my last high okay hit me with the lows uh terrible score dialogue okay. uh directing um mm -hmm. it was very heavy-handed in every aspect like her eating disorder was just thrown at you over and over and over again the Anne Boleyn uh, comparison with her reading the book and then having the the weird visions was just way too heavy-handed be a little bit more subtle about it um there was no consistency I didn't think it okay. seemed all over the place was it a thriller was it a horror movie was it a drama was it a historical adaptation like a biography style it seemed like it tried to be all of those things mm -hmm. at once and they didn't just stick to kind of one lane, which I think would have made it better because it would have been an interesting story to me. And I just didn't like the way they did it. And in general, just that director's style. I watched some of Jackie that came out a few mm -hmm. years ago. Similar style. Yeah. I just don't think I'm a fan of that director at all. Okay. And the ending. Like you're going to have this psychological thriller, this horror movie type of thing. The ending was so campy and cheesy for what the rest of the movie was. It just didn't line up, didn't enjoy it. Glad I watched it to see Kristen Stewart's performance. But other than that, complete waste of time. Worth the nomination for her? Well, once you look at the yeah. uh, nominated actresses this year, it's not a very loaded category. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think she deserved the nom. Okay. Um, most of my lows are kind of on parallel with you. I, a major WTF to the Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Ghost. I mean, I understand the correlation of women trapped in a royal marriage, but that just was so weird. Um, I, I just, I didn't like that. All the soundtrack, the jazz music, what yeah, was, was that doing? Yeah, it was all over the place. The, the score was terrible. It almost made me laugh at some parts <laughs> that were like super violin-y. Um, the moments with the boys, with William and Harry, I thought were the most like compelling. Yeah, I probably should have had that as the high. Those were the best scenes when it was Kristen Stewart with the two, the two boys. Those were interesting. Those scenes. felt the most real in a way, you know, because everything else is kind of imagined, not 
not being able yeah. to ask her. Like when the boys are upset that they can't open the presents on Christmas Eve and she like buys these cheesy toys just so they have the experience. Um, I love that because I, I can see the woman that wanted to cultivate a normal or as normal as possible childhood for them. And was she successful? Was she not? I know when Oprah interviewed Harry, mm-hmm. great Oprah Winfrey, <clears throat> you know, he talked about the money that his mother left in this private account was the only reason he was able to basically leave the royal family and all the responsibilities. Like if he didn't have that, he wouldn't have the funds because everything was so tied up into legacy and his family and all that. So she, you know, obviously the the torment of wanting to give them a real life and her trying to, you know, it was destroying her essentially. And yeah. you could argue did, uh, helped him in adulthood. I mean, now he's living like a happy, genuinely happy life with Megan and his kids. So I just think that that legacy, I like to see that, you know, she, it compounded her legacy continued through adulthood, even when she was gone. And I enjoyed seeing that. I wish there was more. Yeah, there's, I haven't seen a lot of the the different movies about the Royal family during princess dies time. Obviously we talked about on the previous pod, I need to watch the crown. You need to watch the crown. We yes, just have we to all need it. to watch the crown. It's just so overwhelming to get to it, but it needs to be done. I'd like to get more of like a historical reality. Yes. So what happened and as opposed to whatever yes. Spencer was. Yes. Cause I think that's what we're both kind of looking for. And, and the eating disorder of it all, which is so sensationalized to me. And I don't want to downplay the severity of eating disorders. I just felt like in the entire picture of her life, the way that that was like such a meaty part of the film, I just felt like it didn't need to be shown that viscerally in comparison to the other elements that kind of tortured her. I just, I, it's not for this type of film. I just felt like it was so. Yeah. And like I said, it was like every scene, it was okay. We're showing the kitchen. We're showing her getting food. We're showing her in the bathroom, throwing up. We're showing her over and over with the same kind of theme. And then they throw in, okay, is she mentally well? Does mm-hmm. she have a mental illness? She's not acting right. She's acting silly. Like, it just, it could have been done in a more tactful way where it didn't seem like it was, it, I mean, it, it ended up being like half the movie, right? Yes, that was I like agree. the main plot of the movie. So. Right. And at this point, historically, it's, you know, it was over the course of many, many years or yeah. most of her marriage. And it just felt like, for this to be the three days where she's trying to get out and kind of comes to that realization, did it need to be this? You know, I don't know. We'll have to ask the people, but that's my thoughts on that. Ready for the next? Yep, let's do it up. All right, so next is going to be Being the Ricardos. Again, the kind of time period piece. So the time period covered in this film is five days in September 1952, covering three events in the lives of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, the 1953 communism scandal around Lucille, her pregnancy with Desi Arnaz Jr. and the 1955 tabloid publication detailing Desi's wild night out um, <laughs> in the same week. So it's all in a specific time period. I'm going to assume you still haven't seen this movie and you will not. No, and I have no interest in seeing it. And yeah, yes. that's it. You can say whatever you want. I have no rebuttal. Perfect. And again, my favorite line, I bear it so you don't have to. The highs, I have very little. The fact that Hollywood was interested in a Lucille Ball movie. I was excited for that. This movie, No. But that was a high that they were interested. Um, the Aaron Sorkin dialogue that I love, I do like his writing generally, not for this movie, but bring back the newsroom. All I have to say on that. That's my highs. My lows. So your high is that they thought of the movie, but they didn't execute yes. it well. Mm-hmm. And then Aaron Sorkin sometimes is good at writing. Yes. yes. Yep. <laughs> okay. Uh, so. Lows, I mean the movie. 
uh, entire movie. <laughs> uh, but just to point out that Aaron Sorkin saying that he hates I Love Lucy and the broad comedy of it all and then doing a movie on them, I feel like you have to love the person's work that you're covering and doing. Um, the cast, I really like Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem. I do not like them in this movie one bit. Oh, I was going to say, because I've not heard great things about them in the movie, even though last I checked, Nicole Kidman was the favorite to win Best Actress. I, I will be like so upset. I cannot <laughs> tell you if this film wins any awards. That's all I have to say about that. But one more thing on that. Javier is... Doesn't fit as my desert as he doesn't look like him. He is a commanding presence that I didn't think fit. Don't even get me started. Nicole Kidman, terrible, terrible. I didn't believe her humor at all. And I get that they were painting a picture of a perfectionist that she was in the show where she was critiquing, she was editing lines, she was adding things. She was just very in the business. I understand that side of it, but just terrible all around. I was pained to watch it, but determined to watch it. And that's all I have to say about that being the Ricardos. All right, so next up is Belfast, a story of a young boy's childhood in Belfast, Northern Ireland, at the beginning of the Troubles in 1969, based on the writer and director's life. All right, what are your highs? Well, we watched this movie together. Yes, we did. A couple days ago. Uh, One of my highs is it's a cute story. It's very Mm -hmm. well done, obviously. The director, it's his personal kind of story. And I really liked how they focused on the child's perspective throughout the film. So it was always something that he was hearing or he was Mm -hmm. noticing or he was lurking around a corner or he was in the other room overhearing something through the window. And they did a really good job kind of keeping that through line throughout the movie and not kind of going off into different uh, characters' perspectives throughout, which I thought was really cool to do. Uh, Another high I thought was pretty neat was, since it was the child's perspective kind of going on that, Every, what, handful, half a dozen scenes, there was like a real, really joyous scene, like a happy scene where people are dancing or singing in the middle of the civil war they're going through. So I thought that was pretty cool that they're showing kids are kind of oblivious to stuff Mm -hmm. that's going on in the macro. As long as around them, their situation is happy, they can focus on that and not worry about the crazy world that's out there because they're not as pessimistic as adults are. It's just a fact. So I thought that was a really... A nice touch in the movie, and it was a lot better than I thought it was. I honestly was like, "Am I really gonna like this? Is you are, this gonna yeah, be one of hesitant. those black and white kind of artsy films?" And I'm gonna have to force myself to get through it. And then I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good. Is that it for your highs? Yep. Um, so I can we first talk about how damn attractive the parents are? <laughs> that, I mean, great point. Jamie great point. Jordan, Catriona Bell. I mean, that was just. I'm like, wow, that's great. Yeah, so, so uh, do you casting. think the director is just like, damn, my parents were smoke shows. Let's uh, get the most attractive Absolutely. actors we can. <laughs> and I haven't seen the side-by-side of reality or not, Me but neither. that was great to watch. And in a parent-heavy film, a delight. So yeah. thank you. Um, I wish I could have seen a little more of the community of Belfast outside of the main family, just in terms of how hard it was for Ma to leave. Okay. So I, I I did see it, but I, I wish there was a little more because I felt like most of the movie, I was like, get the hell out of there. Like, it just kept getting worse and worse. Um, I love black and white films, so I appreciate that. Also, shout out to Come On, Come On. I love the relationship between Buddy and his grandparents. That was just That was a good one. A that should have been one of my highs, too. That was a nice That touch. was just a delight. The soundtrack, I love Van Morrison. I thought mm-hmm. that was perfectly played, well-timed. And I just love a genuinely nice, feel-good movie. 
And that's what that Which was. Which is tough to say since it's going through a civil war and they're trying to get but all... But I thought they were so light on that. Like, there was enough to know that it's crowding in on the street, but I didn't feel like it was this, like, you know... Well, I think that's because it was through the kids' Through buddies, yeah, yeah, through the kids, yep. All right, so Lowe's, hit me. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of, fan of black and white okay, films, yep. so there's that. Um, and the only other Lowe I had that really jumped out to me was the older brother. Did yeah. he say more than like three words? Like <laughs> no. he just didn't fit no. in. He seemed like just a throw-in character. I know he actually had an older brother. Like if he's going to be there, maybe have a little bit more of a role in the movie. I, I don't know. It just yeah, the girl from the neighborhood probably had more lines and parts and and she was brother. a lot more interesting. Yes, the older brother yes. was just like eh, whatever. He's just there. He's a presence. Yeah. Um, low for me, the karaoke moment at the end with passing on stage that just felt a little too icing <laughs> on the cake. Like it just was kind of goofy to me. It was, but I loved it. Um, I was, I probably more than you, I was distracted by the scenery and I just want to call it out because throughout the movie, it took me out of the film. And by that, I mean, you know, many productions got hit with COVID and Belfast was absolutely one of them. And it just looked fake, the setting to me, in a way that I normally wouldn't notice something like that. Mm. And it looked like it was on a stage. And then later I kind of read that they recreated his hometown street near airport, so a lot of it was built. And the street just didn't feel like a real street to me. And for some reason, like I said, I don't normally notice that stuff, but throughout this film, like the whole setting looked like a soundstage. Like if they huh. just turned the camera over you were going to see, like, the crew people. So watching the movie, it didn't, like, click to me. As mm -hmm. you're describing it, yeah. I can see exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, like, though. the door frames, the street, like, it looked yeah. fake to me. It's just like, yeah. oh, yeah, if we just move over right yes. here, you're going to see. Yeah, I see what you're yes, saying. Yes, yeah. So that distracted me, it did. And like I said, you know, I, it's not that I want more violence or more, like, to a feel-good film, but I just wanted one more of a piece of the community that made Ma, like you know, threatened and people injury and crime and all this stuff. Like she still was like, eh, we could just stay a little longer. Like I'm not leaving. Yeah. He's like, kids are getting killed. What do yeah. you mean? We're going to stay. That's I, he's like, thing. I can't be here. Yeah. They're like, yeah. And she's still like, no, but, and I understand that's, that's the life she knew her, her parents. But like, I just want a little more of that community tie and of why it was so hard for her knowing that her kids were, they were, they were all in this bad spot. Yep. And maybe that is bringing in that danger element or the reality of the situation a little more. That was my only low. Other than that, it was a good film. And maybe don't drag your kids back to the store to bring back, uh, yeah. what was it, sugar or something? Yes. And uh, in the middle of like a massive civil unrest where people are getting hurt and like the National Guard's coming in, maybe don't run right back into the middle of that. Be like, we'll bring this back tomorrow. Yeah, you, you know, know, hindsight, you know, just a little... Yeah. Bad parenting, thoughts. basically. Bad yep. parenting, yeah. I guess it all comes down to. All right, next. All right, so now we're on the tragedy of Macbeth, Apple TV, and what is the story? It's Macbeth people, so get real. Um, a little highs. different, though. Highs, I have to say for me, A24, some of the best productions, so what can I say? It was beautifully shot. Um, the twist of, or I guess interpretation of Macbeth as this man looking back on his life's legacy, this... Um, aging warrior, you know, versus kind of the man in his early 30s, like thirst for power. That was interesting. Denzel Washington, enough yep. said. Uh, Catherine Hunter as a witches and that old man, which is phenomenal stage acting. 
great. Um, Harry Belling from Harry Potter, a.k.a. Dudley, and a.k.a. Uh, Beltic. Belk. Is it Beltic from Queen's Gambit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that yep. was great. Um, supporting cast was phenomenal and took away from someone in my lows, but we'll wait for that. What were your highs of the tragedy of Macbeth? You kind of nailed all of them. Denzel was phenomenal. He was great. Uh, I love the cinematography. Mm-hmm. We talked about this last week, but it's super stripped down. It was shot beautifully in black and white, and it was very clean is I guess the term. It was just very clean visuals throughout, which was kind of a beautiful setting to look at. But yeah, that's about it. You hit all the other ones. I really, you pretty much named every part of the movie. So you must have really liked it. Yes. Yeah. I do love my Shakespeare. And that was, that was probably the highest for me. Now Lowe's Frances McDormand. I know she's close to to Coen brother married to him, but it was a lackluster performance of Lady Macbeth. She has, one of the fun roles in that film in in the story in the play anyways and it just felt like she was just line reading it just didn't really hit like her descent into madness like it felt the most shakespearean in a way like it felt very like i'm reading this these lines like in this tone whereas denzel felt more like encapsulating you know bath in this struggle and this torment i just didn't get that from her and i so she was like it's a role I'm most excited to see. And it was one that I was like, what? No. Yeah. Towards the end, it kind of like flipped too quick on her going into, you know, becoming mad. Right. It just, I didn't see the natural kind of progression throughout the film. It, it did seem a little kind of forced there. Yeah. Just, and she's such a good actress. She's such a good actress. I just, I just think it missed the mark there. And, and I think the elements of when it felt more visceral, more cinematic, more like I am this person. And then the moments where it felt very line reading. And sometimes it's just the interpretation of Shakespeare, which is yeah. our, one of our oldest works. And so it's not going to feel as organic to the acting. Um, but I just felt like some parts just felt, I like one or the other. I like a super stage presence where it does feel that way or just I'm in the role. I'm this person. And I felt like it was kind of a mix. I think that's pretty fair. Uh, for my lows, uh, you pretty much hit it on the head with Francis McDormand and just not enough action for a Macbeth mm-hmm. story. You know, it was much more of how they're trying to get political favor and kind of move up the ranks that way without having their own mm-hmm. child and, He's, you know, this great uh, warrior, right? And you don't see much of it. I, one of my favorite scenes is towards the end where Denzel's just walking up to the guy and basically throws him the yes. sword and then just takes it back and kills him and just in one fell swoop and keeps walking like nothing happened. I'm like, that was badass. If we oh, could have had yeah. a couple more of those types of scenes, this would have been pretty sick. And then he grabs a sword and then stabs him with yep. a dagger while continuously mm-hmm. walking past it. Doesn't even break stride. That was I amazing. Mean, I feel like I got to do that in D&D. That was such <laughs> a power move. It was so good. Here, so. here, take my weapon. Just kidding. Screw you. Bye. Yeah, it was just so clean. Yes, I agree. And a lot of it was staring over the castle walls. Yep. Um, but, you know, I would have liked a little more. Nice beheading, though. Yeah, the beheading was pretty sick yes. towards the end. But yes. that all happened, like those scenes we just talked about, the last 10 minutes of yes. the movie. Yes. So yeah. there's nothing really in the beginning that kind of kept you interested as, you know, with our short attention spans nowadays, right? It was much more of that story building. And every time Denzel spoke, mm-hmm. you believed him because he seemed like he yes. was just in the character. But scenes he wasn't in, uh, 
I was just like, yeah, what's going on here? And eh. thankfully, he was in the majority of it, so yeah. you're you're following his trajectory. But again, it just felt like the other characters, the supporting characters, were great, and just I mean, his other half, Lady Macbeth, just I didn't, you know, I didn't follow her journey. But give me more witches. Captain Hunter was a delight. That was such the contortion an odd of her role. limbs and like her voice. Yeah, yeah that was, was was great. So that's all I got for Treasure Macbeth. Next. Okay, so now we have Nightmare Alley, the neo-noir psychological thriller about mentalists. That's its basic description. Um, <laughs> highs, what do you think? So the highs for me, the production set was amazing. I mm-hmm. thought they really kind of got you feeling like you're in that time and you're in that that setting as well as you could for something that was made in 2022. Um, I thought the acting was pretty phenomenal throughout you bradley cooper's amazing he definitely picks his spots and he just nailed it and that's a pretty difficult role with how many different kind of characters he goes through he starts off kind of this shy troubled guy then he gets a little confidence then he's the freaking man and he's just running Mm -hmm. shit and then he's fearing for his life and then he turns into the person he loathed at the beginning right so it's like I think he nailed all those very well. And I think I already said, yeah, the production design was unbelievable. Yes, yes. And that's what I got for my highs. What about you? So, yeah, let's talk about the Bradley Cooper of all. He's just phenomenal. I loved reading in an interview with Guillermo del Toro, the director, um, who said, you know, Bradley Cooper said he just wanted to be in that circle of actors working on it. Like, he had kind of dedicated himself to, I'm only going to act in the things that I write. But as soon as Leonardo DiCaprio actually dropped out for the main role, Bradley Cooper's role, he was like, oh, no, I, I kind of want to be in that crew. Like, <laughs> I want to be involved in this project. I want to know those people. So I love that he was a bit of a fanboy and mentioned, like, oh, I didn't realize how a little insecure I am that I kind of want to be with the cool kids, like, on this production. And I just want to talk about Kate Blanchett, who honestly could make a terrible movie five stars, in my opinion. She was phenomenal. Roll your eyes, but she was great. And I highlight that to someone who was on my lows. Um, but she's just so good. I just, I thought she was great. Um, she's always, she's always good. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, and she played know. that role very well because she needed to go kind of right at uh, Bradley Cooper in the scenes they were in together. And yes. she stood her ground and, you know, stole the scenes half the time. She's so. just so good at that back-forth, back-forth yeah. power play. Like, she's so good. And I love a carnival mentalist plot, so I was here for that. So that's it for my highs. How about lows? So my main low was, at the end, did it really need to turn so evil and, like, drastically change everything towards the end? Like, it seemed like it kind of got away from him too quick. The movie was long, but... I, I didn't quite understand how he went from like zero to a hundred just after pretty much one meeting with uh, you know, a super rich guy. Like it it all happened too quick there. Maybe a couple other scenes as they were kind of de- he was developing his own thing there with uh, the Rooney Mara character that led him to, hey, I need more money, I need more power to kind of give me a better understanding of why he kept going through with these scams with the really rich people folks at the end Mm -hmm. it seemed a little forced to me i think i liked now whenever i had to take poetry in college and high school like 
And they were like, you can just have free stanzas and you can just make it whatever you want. I'm like, no, things have to rhyme every other line. Like <laughs> I, I know crazy that I had to make up rules and follow them arbitrarily. But I like that in the beginning of this film, you're seeing him first learn what a geek is and then kind of scoff at it or kind of like wowed by it. And then throughout the film, they're warning him like, don't, you know, don't mess with death. Don't, you know, con people with death and get involved in that. And then he just got a little too big for his britches. Did start getting heavily involved in that. And it just went so sour. Hands right back in the beginning. It's like, it's like a fortune telling like you go past a tent, there's a fortune teller in there and they're like, whatever you do, don't see this woman on this day. And you're like, eh. and then, you know, things go bad. It's like, that was the moment where she's a fake. Right. But yeah. she's telling him like, that's the rule of conning. Like you don't do that. And he does it. And then what is his future? He ends up in the lowest of the low of the carnies, which is as a geek. So I, I kind of like that weird poetic, like he ended up where he kind of split at the beginning. He became like highly favored instead of the geek. And then he ended up the geek because he didn't follow the rules. Yeah. And I think you could tell he was going to end up a geek pretty early on in the mm -hmm. movie at the end. Cause you're just like, okay, they're like describing, this is how you become a geek. Like this is what happens. Yes, People yes. are down on their luck. They do this. And you're like, Oh, this is setting up for at the end. He's going to fall down in this path. I didn't know it was going to be kind right. of that route. Right. Um, but I thought it was it was a very well done movie. I could have used a little bit more reasoning why Rooney Mara's character and I cannot remember the actual character's name in the movie right now, but she just like pretty much fell in love with him and left with him pretty quickly and then just worked with him no problem. Like, did we really see him woo her at all? Not really. No, I mean, listen, shout out to Rudy Mara and Kate Blanchett. Shout out to Carol, another movie that they're both in. I Rudy Mara was a low for me because I just felt like either it was the writing wasn't just enough for her. I mean, it felt very like in and out, kind of like the what's the Facebook movie? Um, the social Network. Yeah, yeah, like she's in, she's out. She was praised for that five seconds. Like she's in this movie, but. I'm more curious on Bradley Cooper and Kate Blatchett's chemistry and what this plot is and these other characters towards the end. Like, her part was just, I felt bad for her. She just kind of get roped along. Yeah, I expected more out of but that role. it was a lackluster role. Like, yeah. she wasn't my favorite even close. And Tony Collette, who I love, her performance as Xena, like, felt more like Tony than Xena. Like, sometimes for her, it's hard for me to separate the actress from... Like, it just felt like her. Like, it just felt like her as a yeah. person. Then, like, this, you know, zany, kind of carny fortune teller. Like, I don't know. It just might be a case of the roles that she picks because they're so strong and so specific to these characters. And this was kind of more of a relaxing role, I'd yeah. say. But, yeah. So, I got to say it was more role-specific for my lows than story because I love the story. I thought it was good. Yeah, I agree with you on that front. And uh, I didn't mention it as a high because I don't know if it's a high, but... Willem Dafoe, that's like the perfect role for him. Like, <laughs> William, he just nails Dafoe. that role. Dafoe, yes. Willem Dafoe. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it was, it was. Yeah. He's made to be a carny. And... Oh, yeah, he just fits that. Like, <laughs> you could just plop him in 1950s, and he's like, yeah, no problem, I'm here. Yeah, and he crushed it. All right, that's it for Nightmare Alley. All right, so next is going to be Licorice Pizza, which we saw together in theaters. 
um, sat next to a very nice cinephile couple um, who were also seeing Oscar contender movies at the time. So we didn't have our uh, business cards. We didn't have our business then. cards, but now we have them. Pretty legit. Um, so this film was a coming-of-age film about a 15-year-old hustler and his love for a 25-year-old mm. woman who's kind of lost, looking for fame, not really sure where she is, kind of in her life. I'll start with some highs. Alana Haim in her breakout debut. Uh, just in general, I love seeing the Haim sisters, so that was a delight. I didn't know they were also in the film. Um, I thought she was great. I'm kind of surprised she wasn't nominated i thought for sure she'd get nominated especially with the category this year yeah i was i was stunned on that and after seeing it i was even more so um the hilarious moments of gary's scheming and his confidence (laughs) like that cracked me up it was a kind of laugh out loud film um this is a high and a low really but making me root for a 15 year old and 25 year old uh to get together was so problematic um, and obviously meant to provoke audiences, but uh, I felt terrible for enjoying the chemistry, but I did, so that's a high for me. That's um, fair. I'm going to get into something a little bit. Oh, I hope later. you do. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And just Cooper Hoffman, of course, son of Philip Seymour Hoffman, rest in peace. Great acting, also his debut role. Um, I don't think he was a standout as Alana, but I also thought he did really well. He was also actually 15, yeah. um, which is rare I feel, for a lot of films where actors are just playing younger. Um, so that's my highs of the film. Yeah, so my highs, Paul Thomas Anderson, mm-hmm. great director, crushed it again, in my opinion. Alana, like you said, was great, mm-hmm. uh, and it's her first real, like, major role, yeah. right? So, and she knocked it out of the park, I thought. And how about this for a high? Not having cell phones. If there's cell phones, half of this movie doesn't happen. Because they're looking for each yes. other, they're running towards each other, like... It just, it doesn't happen. If they have cell phones, they could just text or call each other. Like, it's just ridiculous. Nope, nope. It's definitely uh, of an era. So that's a high. Um, I was going to say kind of the theme of they're constantly running to, towards that's each other. That's a high for you. Okay. Or from each other. Mm-hmm. I, like, when I was watching them, like, this seems kind of corny, but at least there was a through line throughout the film that kind of carried that, that all through, that, the through line that carried it through. Yes. No freaking shit, Justin. Yeah. Okay. That's how that yep. works. <laughs> Um, but I thought it was uh, it was really well done, and when you kind of set the, these movies back in the '70s, you really need to be careful about how you set up the entire production set and the dialogue and everything. And you know, PTA knocked it out of the park, in my opinion. Yeah, he's a quirky guy, but I mean, this is definitely a PTA film, and I enjoyed it. All right, hit me with your low thoughts. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna call him for the ISO right okay. now. Here, I got a little bit of a, a blurb, so. You mentioned the age discrepancy, Mm -hmm. right? You have a 15-year-old kid with a 25-year-old woman, basically, and kind of their weird relationship that's not really boyfriend-girlfriend, kind of is, not really, and then it is at the end. That seemed very intentional, like something that happened at the time, because a lot of this was based off of stories from Gary Gutsman's life, Mm -hmm. right? Like producer, actor around the time when he was growing up, so... For him to be so intentional about doing that, that must have had some type of relation to what was going on at that time in his life. So I know it has some issues um, across the board, the age difference, obviously. The racist Asian accent Mm -hmm. was a little ridiculous. Um, But sometimes when you have kind of an underlying purpose of a movie is to shed light on kind of the messed up shit that happened in the past, right? So I understand people being offended by everything and not being comfortable with it when they're watching it now because it's 
not right to, you know, treat people of different descents that way. Like I said, the it was mocking the way that, um, oh man, what was the character's name? It was doing the Asian uh, yes, impersonation, yes. but speaking in English. Mm-hmm. So that's clearly like, okay, that's not okay to do, but I think it's kind of pointing it out in a way that's saying, okay, this was fucked up, but this is stuff that actually happened. So I just think if a, if filmmakers are not necessarily condoning it or praising stuff from the past, but they're putting it out in their stuff, in their movies, in their films, because it did happen across his, history, that's important, right? Because if you remove all the controversial scenes and history from films and TV, then you're pretty much pretending it didn't exist and whitewashing history, which you don't want to do. So as long as they're handled in a way that's true to the film or the character or the time, I think it's almost kind of necessary to allow us to look back at these films and see how things used to be and how we've kind of become better as a society since then. So now I'm going to step off my soapbox and I'll just let you take it from there. Okay. I agree with most of the points you're making there. I think, I think it was meant to stir up something from reality. Clearly a lot of people walked out of that film upset. Like it did rile up a lot of people on both parts, both the age difference and kind of the jokey racist talk. I will see when I saw it the first time I, it seems so clear that the white man making fun of Asian culture was in the wrong, like how silly, goofy, like stupid he looked that I didn't feel like there was a lot of nuance and not enjoying what he's doing. Like, you know, he's dumb and saying offensive things and the people around him are reacting that way. So I thought in terms of how that was done, it was careful um, the age difference, like I said, it the chemistry, like you, you don't even want to say chemistry because there's so clearly like not only is it a cinematic age difference, it's a real age difference. And it was hard watching them joke around and you're kind of rooting for this goofy 15 year old. But you're like, but no, I also don't want this to happen. And in the end, they kind of like run to each other and. I kind of hated having that wrestling moment. Like it was hard to turn off my actual morals and just enjoy <laughs> the film for the film, which I don't really appreciate. Um, and I just got to say probably halfway through the film, I'd kind of like look to you and I know you'd made this comment when we left the theaters where I was like, is this film almost over? Like there was a good chunk of the film that I felt like could have just got tossed. It made me feel like, we have to be reaching the end. It just went, it, it dragged started to on a drag. Little, yeah. Like it went from like a lot of humor, a lot of zings to like, okay, this journey between the two is just very long. I started to look at the clock and I hate to do that in a movie. Yeah. So that's my kind of low for that as I wish it could have been cleaned up a bit where it didn't quite feel like we were running along as well with them. Yeah. I hear you on that front. And I was kind of thinking about the age difference thing. Like why didn't they just, uh, you know, make him 16 and her 18 or make it closer but it doesn't really fit with the theme of the movie right it's she's in her 20s she knows that she's not where she wants to be in life Mm -hmm. and she's like trying to latch on to him for like almost uh being recognized getting into on the ground floor of these things he's a hustler he was on tv he is you know very minorly famous you know and She's just trying to like get into that life as much as possible because she's not happy with how her life's turned out. Right, right. Which, you know, is you can't really have that kind of sense of desperation if you're 18 or 19. 
It is just tough to look back on though. 15 and 25. If it's reversed, if the guy's 15, the girl's 25, it's probably even more of an up or uh, the other way. If the, <laughs> yeah. if the guy's 25 and the girl's 15, right, it's right. probably even more of an uproar because it's like, unfortunately, ooh. but yeah, I just, if it was, the film just would have been completely different if he was 17, like, and that summer he was 18 or something where you're like, ooh, they shouldn't be kind of getting involved yeah. at this point, but you know, we can have your own feelings on that, but it's jarring to have someone 15. I just, it's, you just can't rationalize that age difference. He's a kid. And I know it's a different time, but that made it so hard when they, to their credit or making something that should just be cringe the whole time had me kind of fallen for it in parts because I was loved like their interactions with each other. So that just is a point to the writing of the film, but I just, I just wish it didn't provoke in that way. And I could just like freely root for them to be together and not be like, um, wait a couple more years and then maybe (laughs) you guys can connect. I have a quick question for you. Do you think filmmakers nowadays like to go back to old time periods so that they can avoid having to deal with cell phones. Because like I kind of mentioned earlier in my highs for cell phones not being in this film, it kind of ruins a lot of the anxiety and the anticipation of these characters trying to connect with each other, right? It's like, where where is he? Where is she? Oh, I'm going to go here, but she's going over there looking for me. And are they going to be able to find each other? Is something going to happen? And when you have cell phones, that's kind of out the window. And you don't have that kind of... Uh, real desperation for them searching for each other in a city, you know? I think it's just, that's just the reality we've been in for Mm -hmm. so long that it's just, it is fun, especially us as kids of the 90s, like, to go to a time where, yeah, you were calling people on the house phone, (laughs) and if someone was on the phone, you were not talking to someone, and dial up and all that. Like, it is fun to go to that time period because it is, thinking about us being adults in that time is kind of like, I don't know if I want to be adults at the time, (laughs) but as kids, we... We didn't know any better. Like, yeah. okay, I guess I won't call so-and-so down the street. I'll walk over there. Like, it probably is nice to go to that setting because we're. it feels like we're so far removed from that. So it's got to be fun to do things like that. And then they could just run to each other constantly. Yeah, constantly film. run to each other throughout the entire movie, which was a little odd. Yes, I concur. And I think that's it for our thoughts on licorice pizza. Next. All right, so next let's get into Power of the Dog, which I think is going to have a pretty good Oscar sweep, but we'll see as we get closer to the end of March. This film is about an asshole rancher who braids his brother (laughs) and his wife, uh, and his brother's wife and stepson, and who finally has enough of that shit and things happen. So, highs. So, hi, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Yes. Crushed it. Uh, He played kind of uh, the genius rancher who doesn't put up with anybody else's shit. Um, Other high supporting actor, the uh, the kid there was unbelievable, Cody Smith McPhee. I thought. I think he now kind of doing a rewatch of the film too. I think he he might cinch it. I don't know yet, but yeah, I think I feel better about him. He's my favorite and Mm -hmm. best supporting actor. Uh, Another high is going to be kind of subtle hints throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. That leads you to the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can tell me if this is true or not, but it seems like on a rewatch, it's going to be more enjoyable because yes. you can pick up on some of the things you may not have the first time around. Mm-hmm. I uh, I think, well, real quick, Kristen Dunst in a movie period was a delight, whether oh, it was a you know big role, but I just miss her in films and would like to see more of her. So I enjoyed just seeing her, even though she was a drunk for most of it. Uh, but to comment on what you said, the first time I watched it, I thought it was okay. 
The Same. second time, I enjoyed it more because it's just a brilliant film for misdirection, and I appreciated more of the misdirect moments of the film the second time having kind of gone through it again. Uh, when Peter skins the hide in the woods, and you think it's just because he's um, you know, dissecting the rabbit in the house, and you, I didn't really think anything of it that first go around um you know when phil puts his hand in the water and it's soaking in the same way like little things like that just have this more sinister feel so i was gonna ask you that uh and uh i don't know if you want to finish your thought or you want me to just ask it right now but did the kid do it on purpose yeah absolutely okay i think it's apparent like on a rewatch in the ending because it I kind of gathered that, but I didn't see how throughout. And another great misdirect, which just just shout out to the director. Again, I think she's going to win. I hope she wins. But in the big majority of the film, I watched it the first time. Like, Phil has the power. Phil is this, mm-hmm. he's just a jerk to everyone. He makes uh, his brother's wife, Kristen Dunn's character, feel like crap. I mean, the way he tortures her is just hard to watch. True. He bullies... Um, People is Peter, like just all these moments, the ranch hands, like all of the ways he's a terrible person. He controls the room. He gets people to be quiet and shut up and go to bed. And you're just, I'm like, I'm nervous because I feel like something's going to come to a head between him and Peter. On the second rewatch, I go, no, at no point, even though you're kind of introduced to Peter as this kind of gangly, weird looking kid that just gets picked on all the time and messed with but when he's with phil who i thought in the first rewatch had all the power and was dictating no when i rewatch it i go he's playing to to peter like he knows the deal like he when they're having conversations when he looks like he's afraid of phil like it's a power dynamic and peter wins almost all the times in a way that phil obviously does not realize right until the end and he's calculated and he's smart and he sees the threat that is happening to his mom. And he just in a like cruel, like way, it's almost like he had a way more sinister feel where the first time I watched it, I felt bad for him because he's just, you know, like stuck in this house with Phil and this relationship and stuff. And second time I'm like getting shivers. I'm like, what does adult Peter look like? Because he did this with seemingly no emotional issues whatsoever. And I granted Phil was a terrible person, But the way that they, you know, and there's kind of like a, a definitely a homoerotic like vibe. Like, obviously, like he's insecure because he's trying to hide. So like, but that kind of becomes sinister in a bit. Like he's going to do what, uh, whatever his name is, Buffalo Bill. I don't know. (laughs) Um, He does. And it's just, I don't know, just the dynamic of like, you think one thing's going to happen. Like, oh no, like Phil's going to abuse Peter or something. And it's not. It's a shifted power dynamic throughout. And so a second rewatch, I highly recommend if you kind of felt the same way we did watching it the first time. Um, because it was just, and then at the end when he has the hide and he has the gloves on as he puts it under his bed, like he knows what, you know? Well, that's like the first time I watched it at the end, uh, I was like, okay, he got sit. He had the cut on his hand from uh, when he was out mm-hmm. pulling the post with Peter. I was like, he cut the um, the sick 
uh, calf or or what was it? Uh, it was like a, yeah, yeah. Yep. And gave it to him, and I was like, okay, maybe that wasn't intentional. But then at the end, when he's like with his mother again, mm-hmm. and she's happy, and she's with uh, her husband, and he's kind of looking out the window, and it's like, seems like. Oh, I'm proud. My mom is happy now. And then he just shoves the rope underneath his bed. I was like, oh. Yeah, he's so a doctor. So did he do that on purpose? He's trained to be a yeah. doctor. Like, he knows what anthrax is. And mm-hmm. he watched him cut the hide. Like, just everything. And the way he, when he puts on the gloves and just, like, puts the rope under the bed. Like, I'm not going to touch this. Like, he knows, you know. And and the comment the brother makes at the funeral, like, he never touched disease animals. Like, yep. it is just... And that smile he does. Creepy. That kid, I don't... He's going to be very specific to roles, I think. Um, but that was great. I thought yeah. he did excellent. So that's my high. What about lows for you? Uh, my low is it took way too long to get to the high. <laughs> like, it yes, was too yeah. long and too slow the first hour and 45 minutes of the movie. And then the last 30, 45 minutes I thought was great. But it just took took too long to get there for me. Yeah, I... I want a little more on Phil, but I guess you don't want to make him compelling in a certain way because you do kind of want to look at him as this terrible guy. But there's like a dynamic to him with his experience with his mentor. And he's a genius. May have been a relationship. I don't know if it was consensual or not. And he has a different interpretation as an adult. Like I respected and that was a great relationship, but was it? I don't know the power dynamic of it originally. What he's trying to do with Peter kind of towards the end, like, but what was that all about? Like, I kind of want to know a little more on Phil. Um, but to the point, it's misdirection throughout the movie. I got to say, Jesse Plemons, who I love, um, is a good actor, and I just felt like he was kind of given nothing in this movie. I, I don't s- know how he got nominated for Best Supporting Actor, honestly. I saw him, and I was like, oh, yes, awesome. He's in this movie, and towards the end, I'm like, eh, I could care less about the scenes <laughs> he was in. Like, he was just there to be made fun of. Yep. And like help. He didn't really do anything. No, he didn't really do anything. So I just felt like what a waste of a great actor. Uh, but whatever. It's more about the Phil Peter situation. So that's my low. All right. That's uh, that's fair enough. I think I agree with you on knowing a little bit more about Phil's backstory. Like everybody kind of reveres him, right? They're like, hey, this is a genius guy who went to Yale and he just said, ah, screw it. I'm just going to become a rancher. You know, like why? What happened? What switched? Like, he's also, what, an expert, uh, was it a ukulele player or whatever? Just out yes. of nowhere. And it's just like... Wait, was it banjo? Was it banjo? Yeah, yeah it was so. banjo. He's just out of nowhere. He's, like, great at everything he's ever done. And he's just an asshole. Yeah, the it's whole like, time. And that's also a point of the misdirection. Like, I like he started to warm up to Peter. And it was only, like, as you realize, like, oh, for what, to what, you know, point... That you were like, oh, is this the time where he becomes a better person? He realizes this is a fact, but then you're kind of worried about Peter. So just, again, it's like, what is this going towards? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's it for Power of the Dog. We'll see how it plays out in award season. On to the next. All right. So next, let's cover The Lost Daughter on Netflix. I mean, to describe this film, in it's about the complexities of motherhood, um, both at a later generation and just starting out. I guess in its simplest form. Um, highs for me, very few. <laughs> Did not like this movie whatsoever. Okay, oh, I appreciate you and your wife having two opinions of the film. And so I went into it like, which way am I leaning? And I'm totally leaning with shit. It was brutal. I enjoyed Dakota Johnson and Jesse Buckley. I enjoyed the scenery of Greece, of which it took place. 
I enjoyed a story involving the complexities of motherhood, which sometimes result in having love for your children and also feeling anger and regret and bitterness that you have them. Yep. That that's a true thing. Um, I thought that was not interesting for my mom, to explore. Though. Not for your mom. No, yeah, no. not for my no. mom. Um, and what does it mean? Do you lose your personhood and motherhood? Can you be a good person and a bad mother? What does it mean? Like that. Didn't like how they conveyed it, but I like that in general, the complexities of that. That's my highs for this film. How All right, you? so you took a lot of my highs. I loved the flashback sequences with Jesse Buckley. Yes, that I was highlights, yes. She crushed it, and I think in those sequences, they showed a really interesting way of the complexities of being a mother when you're young, you're still trying to advance your career. Like, how do you kind of manage those? And, you know, if you're married, what are you doing on that front? So I like those sequences. I agree, I didn't really like the Olivia Coleman part, which is tough to say since everybody thinks she's kind of like the best actress going right now. But I did like some of the interactions with Olivia Coleman, Leda, and Ed Harris's character. Okay. But yep. It wasn't developed enough. Like it was a long movie and they didn't give me enough. They had a couple good sequences where they were together and it was kind of like an interesting dialogue back and forth. But then it's like, okay, he's gone. We don't see him for 40 minutes. Yes. And then he shows yes. back up and you're like, uh okay have they talked or had any type of connection in between or is it they're just gonna kind of pop in and out i figured ed harris fairly big name Mm -hmm. he'd have more of a role i was wrong and that's about it for my highs okay okay (laughs) so i'll bring us into the lows um the slowness of the film or the half of the movie where you just watch adult later stare at people at the beach and have awkward conversations with people it was to the point where I paused the movie and said, how far, how, is this the movie? Did yeah. she just like stare at people and then have like <laughs> weird, uncomfortable conversations? Um, the actual plot with adult Lena was just a low for me. I just wanted to get to the past where I thought Jesse Buckley was compelling and interesting in that young mother role of, of flashbacks. Um, the doll, the whole doll Part of it all was dumb, and I hated it, and I thought the ending reveal of the doll was stupid, and yeah, those were my lows, other than just saying the whole movie, but... (laughs) (laughs) So, I agree with the current day Leda character. There wasn't enough drama. Like, they mentioned a couple times, hey, this is a dangerous family you don't want to screw with. Like, keep your voice down, don't say bad things to them. And there were no real consequences she faced the entire time, even after really weirdly stealing the doll and hiding it in her cupboard. Like, she, like, make a little bit more, like, consequences, something for her actions in present day instead of nothing. She told Dakota's uh, character at the end, like, oh, hey, I took it, here you go. She gets mad, and that was about it. It's like, well, there are no repercussions to anything she did. It was pretty boring in present day. Make the whole movie Jesse Buckley and the flashback sequence with maybe like a slight flash forward sequence to how she's dealing with it 30 years later. Just reverse the entire movie and I'd be okay with it. Yes. Okay. I'm with that. I'm with that version of The Lost Daughter. And I just thought like there were elements that were so unnecessary that just made it more confusing. Like like the doll situation. If clearly at the end we know that she has a relationship with her adult daughters right and through the flashbacks we see that she actually ends up leaving them for a period of time 
because you just three years, three years. That's a significant amount of time in a child's life when they are between the ages of like seven and 10. Right. Give or take, which is like she just can't take it. She leaves and has to have this distance. Um, It's to the point where at the end, when she's calling them, they're worried because they hadn't talked to her in a couple of days. So clearly there's some closeness there. They worked through whatever. If they did, I don't know. Um, that was more interesting to me than, than why is adult Leda like taking this doll? And it, it almost has like a sinister feel. Like, you know how much this means to the kid. Like you haven't kind of come to this adult life where you're warning Dakota Johnson's character. Like, you know, I've been where you are. Like those feelings don't go away. They're going to build and you may leave your children. Like I left my children <laughs> and I loved that. I did and hate that I did. And, that's complex. Like that's interesting. But then the plot of like her taking her child's doll away and she's crying and it almost like you look at her, like you're a bad guy. And then like just the way that how she like, just, I just thought it was fun when she reveals it to her at the end and just like adult, like at the end where she's talking to her daughters, I'm like, she's not okay. Like she's, it made me go like, Oh, she didn't come to this good place with her adult daughters. I go, is she still like, fucking with them i guess you know like is she still yeah does she have dangerous elements like does she is she in their lives and drops out because she she's not all there right and she has these weird like blackout sequences where she's like oh what happened or oh i like fainted or oh like what's going on and the whole time you were kind of like oh she's gonna do something and lose a kid or injure a kid or something which she lost the uh, one of her daughters at the beach found her like Nothing major happened in uh, past tense or in the current tense. And the the most interesting part of the kind of current day character is when she's talking to, uh, oh man, what is um, Dakota Johnson's character's name there? Um, Nina. Yes. She's talking to Nina and Nina's like, how did it feel to leave your kids? And she goes, fucking amazing. Yes. It was awesome. It was like the best time, but also fucking terrible. And it's just like. That, like you said, is is the interesting part. Yes, like, yes. And that was about it. My eyes yeah. lit up when you said that line because it's like, yeah, you know what? Sometimes it's not pretty. Sometimes you don't come out of it like, I regret those three years. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, yeah, I needed I that. Needed that. <laughs> and even if it has complicated my relationship with my kids, like, I don't regret that. And guess what? The kids and us as the audience have to deal with the fallout of that, whether we resent her for doing that or we understand. Yeah. That's our own to judge. But it's like... That, those are real compelling moments. The weird elements where she just wants to mess with people and why and her mental health, I don't know. It's just that was a layer I think I could have done without, and I probably would have liked the movie a lot better. That is fair enough. So you're not rooting for Olivia Coleman for Best I Actress? I am not, but we're going to watch The Crown maybe this summer. Okay. <laughs> All right, good. next. All right, so next up we have... Don't Look Up, another Netflix film, essentially about a comet coming to Earth and no one is paying attention in its barest expression. Yep. What were the highs for you? Uh, I thought the performances by Jonah Hill was really, yes. really great. Uh, I thought uh, Leo did a good job. I don't think he was like superb. You're bringing more awareness to global warming in kind of a fun, entertaining way, mm-hmm. which is a high. And it's Adam McKay. I like the way he directs. He has the comedic elements to it while also trying to get a point across. And it came out uh, when we were traveling to California, so I got to watch it on a plane. So perfect timing. What about your highs? You know, I think uh, the best part of the film is how true it feels. And I thought I would have a lot 
Well, that's a low. Okay. So I'm just <laughs> going to say that I, how true, like when you're watching, you're like, yeah, that's terrible, but I can see that happening. Oh, the way that they're laughing and joking and making a song about this. And you have this group that's suddenly opposed to, and the rich people get away for free. And it, all of that felt so real that at times it was painful because it felt like yep. this could be reality. But I actually, I end up liking that more so than the comedy of it all. Um, Ariana Grande and her song of songs. Don't look oh, up. Was was there he is. She great. was great. Um, honestly was tempted to buy a don't look up shirt just because it made me laugh. But then I felt sad about the state of the world. Um, and I'm going to say the ending was a high for me because, and I'm going to get dark here because it's just my thoughts. I just felt like it was a true ending because in reality, I feel like there are so many people working hard not to make our planet end just in disaster, like in real life. And it's just going to anyways, because people are just inherently selfish Fair, and so yeah. watching it even though you're sad that the comet spoiler does hit the earth and kill everyone except for you know rich Meryl streep uh who gets out in the rocket i just go yeah i think that's really gonna happen but it's nice to see this visually in a comedy so yeah yeah it was there were so many real elements of uh, society now and i've heard a couple interviews with Adam McKay where they started writing and filming this before like the pandemic before a lot of the some of the Trump stuff kind of came out and he said he had to cut a lot of stuff because it seemed like he was just trying to rip off something that happened in real life when they actually wrote it years before it actually happened like some Trump things and uh the pandemic and they just He's like, I had to cut it because it seemed like it was too fake, even though we wrote it before it actually happened in real life, which I found super interesting. As far as Lowe's, on that same front, it was a little too much in your face, right? It was, yeah. it was I know it's a satire. It could have dialed it back a little bit, maybe. Uh, I know the point was make it this big grand thing to really throw it in your face so you're forced to pay attention to it. I mean, it was nominated for Best Picture. Obviously, it worked but maybe dial it back a little bit. And then Timothy Chalamet's character, what the hell was the purpose of that? He was my low as well. It was a waste of Timothy Chalamet. Oh, sorry. My yes. bad. I'm an expert now at saying his name. I progressed every 10 episodes when we talk about him. He's a great actor. Totally. I mean, I know some people laughed at this role. I just felt like what a waste of having him in the film. And I don't think J-Law was on the verge of one of my lows too. Jennifer Lawrence... Just, that's not really the role I see for her. That wasn't really accentuating all of her talents. I'm going to reference Silver Linings Playbook winner, of course, because that was a movie where she wasn't likable in terms of how her character was to other characters, right? Other than yeah. Bradley Cooper's character. But, like, you did, right? Because she was crazy. Yep. But, like, matched his crazy. And so you as an audience enjoyed her, even if the characters in the film kind of were mixed match feelings on her this one she was generally an unlikable character which she can play but it just you want a little of like there is no rooting for yeah her, right? like yeah. you kind of want to like her a little bit and i mean it's huge that she's come back i she's she's very like she has her ear to the ground like she kind of referenced like she took time off because people are sick of me and honestly at the time of when she did leave i do think that was true like she just was everywhere like jennifer lawrence like what she was saying was getting pieced you know pulled apart like 
I feel like she, like, for her just to step away and be like, yeah, I think, like, everyone's kind of sick of my, like, what I bring to the table. And what people love about her is her realness, like, for better or worse. And so I do enjoy her as a person. I just think, yeah, this role, even Leo, like, and that's another factor for me, which is the low, is that it didn't really make me laugh as much as I thought it was going to. Because it was hitting too yes. close to home. Yes, yeah. it was more made me like sad and like, mm, okay. Yep. So yeah, that's kind of my don't look up thoughts. Yeah, same for me. All right. All right, so let's talk about Coda, an Apple TV film um, about a hearing girl in the deaf family who is torn between her responsibilities with the family fishing business and her passion for singing and just generally being misunderstood by her family. Highs, can I say everything? I love this movie, and like we said last week, like just if I'm going off of my heart, I just want everything Coda to win all the things it's nominated for. It just was a delight. My mom, which I had showed her one of my favorite films, Midsummer, and she turned to me and said, "This is the worst garbage movie ever. How could you like this?" Also, if uh, everybody just take a shot every time Kayla references Midsummer because she brings it up <laughs> all the freaking time. Just because yes. she loves What's-Her-Face there. How dare you, Florence Pugh. Yes. <laughs> um, am I blushing as I speak? Yes, I do. But listen, I redeemed myself with Coda. When she watched Coda, she's like, okay, maybe I'll start to listen to your movie recommendations. Um, because she loved it, and she's watched it, I think, at least three or four times. You got to hit one side of every, like, 600, Kayla. I mean, I'm still waiting for Whatever. some more Listen, but... we, we could talk about your bad taste at a later time, and we do every time we do a movie review. But listen, tears, if a movie make me cry, I'm usually good with it, and it did several times. Ruby was also a delight, um, the character, and I just, yeah, I loved it. And to quote one special scene it's just when you know her parents don't understand her passion for singing since they you know they're not experiencing they can't hear her and her father goes to the concert but he sees how people react and he's like oh wow she they enjoy her and he's like touching her face so he can kind of hear her sing i mean when i tell you i bawled i bawled okay highs for you Uh, I love that they use deaf actors for the family. Yes. That was really kind of cool and gave it that authentic feeling that that type of movie needs. Uh, Amelia Jones, who played Ruby, was awesome. I loved the dad, Frank, played by Troy uh, Coetzer, who's nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He was amazing. He was hilarious. He hit all the marks. And you kind of touched on this, but it's kind of a fine line to walk to show the complexities of Amelia's character Ruby where she wants to support her family because she's the only hearing one but she also needs to do stuff for herself so how does she kind of compartmentalize both of those things she and she kind of waxes and wanes back and forth and I think they did a great job of kind of giving that uh, that sense of feeling through the film where you could see her kind of like oh I really want to help my family I can't oh maybe I should but I need to do this for myself and the, the desperation, the anxiety like of what decision she was going to make was real throughout the film. So That's exactly it. It was a feel-good film to me. Your wife described it as a sad film. But to me, it's just the complexities felt real and authentic yep. and painful and complicated while still making you like root for people at the same time, which is hard to do, I think, for films. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Did you have any lows, or was it just uh, highs for you across the board? It was, but I do have some, which is more just more things I wanted in it, uh, which (laughs) is one, I felt some type of way about older brother Leo 
you know, not apologizing or us not seeing the scene where he's talking to Ruby when he tells her that our family was fine before you were born. I understood the <laughs> argument. I just felt some type of way about like, can we get a scene where he's like, sorry, I said we were better off without you um, when she's in just this like horrible state of mind. So but like, I think a minute or two before he said that, I looked to my wife and I was like, how come nobody's just been like, hey, we were fine before you were here so we can figure it out right. if you go off, you know? Because clearly they've all survived fine and she wasn't around her entire parents' mm-hmm. lives. And then he just said it in a really harsh way. So I that was, was just a like, rough. I felt just felt because she was just giving up something she loved because she just felt this obligation that yeah. in turn her parents had kind of put on her this obligation that you need to help us. Uh, but I understood what you're saying. And then the dynamic between the mother, I just like, you know, when she, they're on the bed and the mother's confiding in her that she was afraid to having a hearing child. Like she was sad. Yeah. She was upset because her mother was hearing and they had a disconnect because they couldn't understand each other. And it's lighthearted because, you know, the Ruby's joking with her, but at the same time, they do kind of have that dynamic because she doesn't feel understood by her mother who nope. just dismisses her worries and thoughts. And so I wish there was a little more there. Um, but you know what? Life is messy. And I guess not everything has to be tied up at the end when she went to college. I mean, that's probably true to if this was a real life situation. So Yeah, you can't have all the happy endings kind of tied I up. I know, at the end. but dang, did I want it. So I had one maybe low, but maybe not. So maybe this is my white, okay. my privilege speaking as a white male. Okay. But yep. some oh, of the, can't wait to hear. Go <laughs> ahead. Lay it on me. <laughs> but some of the high school bullying seemed a little out of place and not authentic. But high school girls are kind of all over the place, so I don't know. Did you? That seem I actually real to I'm going to bring you back to the conversation you had with three women uh your wife myself and our friend kate where we talked about the things we witnessed experienced from other girls in school and girls you, are mean you man. and craig were like horrified at the experiences that we had so i think that's your just example of three people talking about it and not in heavy detail about the differences so yeah guys aren't aren't as much like that so yeah or at just, least my experience it's just wasn't. different ways yeah. yeah it's different ways so yeah, so I loved it. Yeah, me too. It was a, a great movie, and I'm rooting for it to take home something, but the odds are against it. Uh, yeah, exactly. All right, we got to get going. Next. All right, so let's talk about King Richard. Let's do. Which is about Richard Williams and kind of his journey and how he helped his daughter, Serena and Venus Williams, might have heard of them, become tennis stars. So. Not tennis stars, the greatest tennis players. Yes. Ever. 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 Yes. Ever. All right. Highs. Will Smith. Yep. Unbelievable. Uh, he nailed the mannerisms and the walk and just the overall kind of feel of Richard Will- Williams. You can tell he really put in the work to make sure he got that really close uh, to being authentic. So I thought he crushed it. Super interesting story. Uh, Venus and Serena, obviously growing up uh, Compton their dad coming up with this plan to make them tennis stars because there was kind of an inefficiency in the market, right? And super interesting story. I was really excited to watch this movie. And I will say I was disappointed in it. I think I'm in the minority and I'll get into that a little bit more on my lows. But what did you think? Um, I didn't know too much about their life story and like kind of how they came up into tennis. 
um, other than just being these like prodigies uh, and athleticism and other things. And so I loved like kind of experiencing it for this first time through this film and kind mm-hmm. of seeing how they got their start. Um, I also enjoyed like Will Smith. Great. I, Will Smith is someone that I think I don't really lose him in roles as far as he he's more Will Smith. Like I believe when he kind of embodies these characters, like I'm in it. I think he's that person. Yeah. Like he doesn't get to, you know, the Tony Collette, like I said earlier, another film. I just, you don't see Will Smith. You see the character. Right. And I just think him. he does it so well. And if this is going to be his Oscar win, um, I'll be happy with it. I know some people have some mixed feelings and you might um, in your lows. I know that pursuit of happiness um, was one that he, you know, didn't end up getting. Might argue was a little better, more worthy of an Oscar win. But yeah. in general, I enjoyed the movie. I gotta say. Yeah, one more high I kind of forgot to mention is the wife's character. So Anjanu Ellis played mm-hmm. the wife, and I loved her character because she did push back on Will Smith's character on Richard Williams a few times, and she's like, "Hey, these are my daughters too. I'm helping." You're doing this shit. I'm out there helping them train. I'm out there helping them with mm-hmm. their homework. I'm like bringing home money for this family. And they didn't just make the wife a kind of a side character that just went along for the ride, but she was an integral part in the in the kids actually growing up and getting to where they are today. So I thought that was a pretty pretty neat kind of wrinkle that maybe a lot of people don't know about when they think about the Williams sisters. They immediately just think of the dad. Yes, yeah, which I I agree with that. And I think, you know, in the film, uh, in real life, I see they did not stay married and they ended up divorcing. And through this film, I could see why. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I thought that was really compelling, a a difference from a lot of the wife characters that I feel like are just quiet side characters. Like, she was in it. She was in the mix. Maybe not as annoying or vocal, but she was in it. And so I like that they showed those both sides, like you said. How about Lowe's? So for me, I, I needed more information. I wanted more of the story. I wanted more of the background to how they got to where the actual movie started. They talk about Richard Williams coming up with this the his plan, and he wrote out the plan for his kids mm-hmm. and how he's going to implement it, and everything's planned out for their entire lives. How did he come up with that? What made him choose tennis? Like, I know there was an inefficiency in the market, right? No black tennis stars, mm-hmm. and he could do something with that. However, why didn't he try to implement this with his other kids? He had three other daughters that he didn't use the plan with. What We never see this. Is it a document? Is this just all in his head? It sounded like he had it written down in a right. binder somewhere. I wanted more of the background to him realizing, I need to get my kids out of here. How am I going to do this? oh, look, there are no black women's tennis players. Maybe that's where we can make our mark. This is how I'm going to do it and putting in the work and coming up with that plan. And I thought it was lackluster. Like it followed them for a few year stretch, kind of when they are in that uh, that teenage years where they're already in it for, what, seven, eight, ten years, depending on the age of them, because he started them so young. So why didn't we get more about what led them to that point? And I think it was a little too favorable on Richard Williams, honestly. Okay. Like, he is kind of this notorious figure. Obviously, people have a lot of thoughts on him. 
no matter what, he's a great father. He's trying to support for his kids, mm-hmm. right? And he's doing it in the way he thinks is best to get them out of there. I think the fact that Serena and Venus were involved in production and had to sign off on the script mm-hmm. may have kind of tilted this movie a little bit too towards kind of the campy favorable side and less towards the real side. Like maybe I know they've had to go through a lot of shit with where they grew up. Maybe more of that, more of these assholes that wouldn't let them, you know, practice in their, on their courts or in their uh, country clubs. And they had some of that and they did show some of the dynamics between, you know, their culture and the white country club owners and everything. But it, it seemed too tamped down for me. Okay. So, but maybe that's just me. Because everybody loves this movie and is raving about it and wants it to win Best Picture. And I don't see it. I see Will Smith and I see a cool story. And I, I'm i just, there's something missing. And I wish they would have did a little bit better of a job. Would it have been hard to, like, follow the Venus and Serena of it all if they had just doubled down on how he was as a person? Like, would it have been hard to follow their portion of the film, right? Which is them becoming who they eventually become. Well, if he just was just a terrible person throughout, I mean, well, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if he's a terrible person throughout, but it's called King Richard. Mm-hmm. It's not called the, the Williams sisters, right? So the movie is, it's framing it about following him and how he got his kids to where they are. And I wish they kind of followed through more with that. Obviously you want to kind of, see clips of them playing tennis and getting to a certain point. But I wanted more of the history about him and how he got to the point where he realized he needed to make a drastic change for his kids in order to get them out of that area. And then the Williams sisters almost as like a secondary character in the movie. And then you make another movie about their whole freaking rise to stardom and everything that happens. They don't even, I don't even think at the end of the movie, they showed both of them facing off. They had a one versus two in the world. They faced off so many times because they were the number one and number two women's tennis players in the world for a very long time. They had no, I think that was more like the credit flashbacks Mm -hmm. where they said like, does it, is it bad going against each other? And like, no, that's what we've trying to do like we're sisters we grew up playing this game and so it yeah, was but, or but even, you didn't get that in the film no you didn't get any of that in the film and you know there's a massive point where serena topples her sister because venus was the older one mm-hmm. who kind of held the upper hand for the first few years and then serena surpassed her in a match and started winning freaking every tournament there was after Holy that. Holy crap, those numbers. And then they were like, okay, let's team up and just dominate every doubles tournament that has ever existed. So I think that you couldn't fit that into the King Richard movie, maybe, like their whole um, kind of professional careers. I'm sure that'll be made into a movie at some point. I know Serena's got a documentary on HBO that is in my queue I've been meaning to watch, so maybe that'll shed some light on some stuff, but... There was just uh, just something missing for me personally. Yeah, fair enough. I think, you know, I, because I'm coming at it in a different way in that, I mean, fair to say you're more sport-centric than myself. No. And so I'm sure you're familiar with like a lot of st- stories, the background of how great athletes, right, and where they come from, the family dynamics, because I didn't know really much of anything or that he was the central figure in their lives. Mm. Um, I was kind of looking at it as 
I know the I know Serena and Venus Williams. I don't know him. And so the the flashes of them playing is what kind of like kept me in not knowing who Richard was. Gotcha. And I I will say there were some cringy parts, mm-hmm. like how he I love the forcefulness of his no, you're going to give us this and do this. But some moments, it's just the relations he had with other coaches and stuff just made me go like, Ooh, <laughs> yikes, you know? Um, so I thought they did a good job doing that, but I'm with you. I just think, I don't know, sports films. What can I say? There's one every year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great take, Kayla, sports films. You know, there, there's always one. <laughs> yes, all right. All right, so that kind of ties it up for the films we're going to discuss in this episode. Like I said, we have a few more films that were nominated heavily for the Oscars next month um, that we'll cover and probably have a little bit of a longer breakdown um, I do want to mention Dune, of course, nominated for Best Picture. We had a great episode, our episode 29, where we did a more in-depth breakdown of Dune. It was a great film. We're very happy it was nominated um, and kind of our thoughts about it. So please go back. Episode 29, great Dune discussion. Do it now. And let's get to our Swarly of the Week. Okay, so my Swarly of the Week is just around this award season as I try to watch all these films. Just around the riverbed? Beyond the Shore. I am just upset that films still come out in art houses and aren't available to us, the simple folk who don't (laughs) live in major cities with art houses. I want films... I, when they come out and I see trailers, I want to be able to see them, whether they're streaming or they're in a theater. But when you say it's going to be in seven theaters for, you know, three months, I don't appreciate that, Okay. And maybe if I lived in a place where one was close by, I would, and it wouldn't be my Swarly of the Week. But, you know, I love artsy things, but not select theaters. Give me the film. I mean, there's some films that I'm just dying to see that are absolutely move. not available to me. You could move, Kayla. I could move, but I don't know that an art house is going to be the draw for me. What would happen to the podcast? Okay, so my... It would end. <laughs> my Swarly of the Week, um, I'm sure a lot of people watch the Super Bowl. So in the commercial, there was one that just tied into the 90s nostalgia, the Pong type thing, the Coinbase commercial, where they just had the QR code bouncing around the screen. Did you see this one, Kayla? No, I might have missed it. Oh my gosh. It's, it was just a QR code. That's it. And it was bouncing around the screen and you're waiting to see if it's going to hit the perfect corner. You know oh, how everybody like cheers for that? Yeah, yeah. And you're just like, oh, 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 no, it's not going. And then at the very end, it hits the perfect corner. And that was like a big cheer for us as in my house watching it. And if you scan the actual QR code, there was no information. It didn't tell you what the QR code was for. What? So brilliant, brilliant uh, marketing. Because then people would scan it to see what it was. And then it drove everybody to the Coinbase website or app or whatever it was. And... Just they got a mu- so much publicity, like so many hits on their website, so much so that it crashed a few minutes after oh. the uh, after the ad. That is kind of yeah. I, I feel like when you present that to your PR team, they're like, "That's so stupid," but in actuality, kind of brilliant. Yeah, because one person in every party is going to scan it, yes, right? They're going to be yes. like, "Well, we got to check what the hell is this," you know? Right. And then it crashed. So that's why it's the Swarly of the Week. It's like, oh, cool. All right, 90s nostalgia. This is fun. It's kind of one of those stupid, simple commercials. You're just waiting for it to hit the corner. And then they get so much publicity from it that, uh, or not publicity is not the term, but so much run to their website that it crashes immediately. 
I'm going to have to ask the people I was with because I don't recall that commercial whatsoever. But was that oh. before or after the halftime show? I think this one was before the halftime show. Okay. So I probably was just waiting for the halftime show at that point. So that's probably oh where all my, my gosh, thoughts were. <laughs> okay. Good for of the week. All right. Let's get to our friendship question of the week, which I think is kind of simple. And I'm curious on how we interpret this. Okay. Mine has version of it has certainly changed over the years. Yours might be the same. How do you define success? Money. Oh, okay. Uh, money. Well, okay. Uh, money doing something that is challenging and stimulating for me. Okay. So, so if you earn money by doing something that like stimulates and challenging, yeah, you're successful. Are yes, other people? I think so. Um. Yeah, it changes with age. I think it does. Constantly, yeah, like, I, you want to be mostly. happy, but it's. I also want to make enough money to be comfortable and retire earlier. So I would say that's success. But I think I'm a little bit more shallow in that sense than you are. So. You know what? You're being real in that moment. Yeah. I appreciate that about you. Um, you money hungry Scrooge. Okay, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um. Yeah. How do you define success? I mean, that does tie into happiness too, right? What a little bit you do i mean I that's it for you you're all about the green but uh i think success for like in its easiest terms is always achievement based like i feel successful when i'm hitting this 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 because it's the clearest way to go i've done these three things that's a success yep. um as i get older like you said it does change i mean to be successful is to be more well-rounded than I think I had in my teens and twenties. Like for me, it was like career or education mm-hmm. or whatever I was kind of envisioning as this is success was it. But to me, like I see the more well-roundedness of people and, you know, relationships and kids and different stuff that brings you success, brings you happiness, brings you that, like I'm successful because I hit this. I see that, it's more, it's not so much achievement based. I think it's more like the elements that bring you happiness outside of the achievement based success, you know? Yeah. You know, and as you're saying that, I'm thinking it's like, would I be happy if, you know, I was making half the money I am now mm-hmm. and we were just doing the podcast and this was our full-time job. Right. I think I, I would probably consider that a success, even though I'm making less money because it's something I'm enjoying doing. Mm-hmm. That's stimulating and fun and engaging. And so I guess I'm all over the place. I don't know. But generally, I, you know, give me those Benjamins. I mean, listen, I hate it when people are like, money is a happiness. I love the quotes from people who are like, yeah, no, you're pretty happy. Because I'm like, fair play. Mm-hmm. It's not that it doesn't come with drawbacks, but yeah, I feel like most people have a lot of money or or feel successful financially. Feel pretty okay. Yeah, you know, I would agree with that. So yeah, yeah you know, that's what I gotta say about that. All right, so that's it for us this week. Great long episode, but long we covered a lot pod. of movies. I hope you enjoyed. Check out the movies. Let us know your thoughts on them, and we'll see you next week. Well, that's it this week for Wrong Opinions Only. Follow us on Instagram at Wrong Opinions Only and on Twitter at Wrong Opinions JK, where we'll be dropping some clues and hints towards next week's episode. Until then, JK out.